0: I think he'd react rather violently to the word friends, because once when he was charged with a driving offence in the Dublin District Court, he was brought before the late District Justice McDonough, who was deputising. He was a District Justice for Wexford, and he was deputising in Dublin when Miles was charged. Miles had been looking forward, I think, with some expectancy to the fact that he was going before McDonagh. But McDonough said that because he was a friend of the accused, he would adjourn the case for a month. And you can imagine Miles' scorn for that sort of friendship. Mihaul O'Hay, doubtful of how Miles Nagopoline
1: might react to a program like this. But generally his friends and acquaintances remember Miles with affection and a little awe.
2: I think that at his best he had a clarity of mind which saw through Humbug. At his best he had a, an incisive way of saying things which at times didn't give much room for the graces uh, the so-called graces of conversation and i think that he cared about a number of things really and that uh, about things he cared for he didn't he wasn't prepared to waffle uh,
3: why he got on so well i think was Miles didn't talk as a literary man, you know. Li- literary, in inverted commas, he he was more, much more interested in talking about municipal affairs, for instance, and the everyday sort of life of Dublin was apparently of, as as much concern to him as anything else. So therefore, he could talk with a, with a very wide variety of people on a variety of topics. It could be a bus driver on the talking about the conditions on the number 11 route, or, on the other hand, it could be a doctor or a medical student. Uh, he had something t- to talk about to everybody. And, as I say, he took this great interest in municipal affairs. He was always giving out about the corporation for this or that or the other, and, the lo- and local government. Of course, he had been in local government for years as, I think, principal officer. So that he had a very w- wide, very eclectic... Um, range of friends and he had a very wide knowledge himself of a subject in which nearly all the pub goers were fairly familiar with. So there was nothing esoteric about his talk and therefore that
4: made him very much more acceptable to a mass of people. The learning of course was amazing too, he was a, a profound scholar and the oddities of his learning too that, come out, that came out in the column I mean, I'm quite told, told that his knowledge of railway engines was, in fact, exact and wonderful. And how a man who was a good classical scholar and a good Celtic scholar could also be a good scholar with railway engines is something I've never quite understood.
5: I think when I first met him, he was fairly new in the Irish Times. He'd been writing for a year or two in the column, and it was perhaps more or less at its height. That was the, the latter part of the 40s. He was writing then with tremendous vigor, great invention, and the kind of thing that nobody had ever seen in this country before, I think. It was also, as I think I've remarked elsewhere, a particularly enclosed period of Irish life. It was the end of the war. We'd had a period of censorship. It was a very grim period indeed. And this uh, breaking down of barriers of all kinds, I think, suddenly seemed terribly refreshing to everybody.
1: Sean McRaeman, John Ryan, Benedict Kiley and Jack White Remembering different aspects of Miles Nicopoline, the man, Needle Sheridan knew him better than most. He shared the salad days at University College Dublin.
6: Around the early thirties, uh, Brian and myself literally uh, alternated the editorship of the college magazine, then called Corum Fenia, uh, between us. Uh, during that period, he uh, uh, displayed his uh, originality and incidentally got me into a bit of bother. Uh, in the following way uh, I suggested to him that he might write for me a series of um, stories of contemporary Dublin life, a sort of uh, Dublin Decameron and he agreed to do this on condition that he was allowed to write in Old Irish so I said fine, uh, far ahead uh, the point was that only three people in the country could read Old Irish Binchy, Bergen and Best, the famous trio of scholars uh, so he went ahead with this and uh, apparently was writing the most bawdy uh, possible material. And after two months, the the three old lads were enjoying this so much that they began to tell the stories to uh, the various professors uh, around the place. And eventually it got back to the ears of the President and I was summoned to uh, answer a charge of uh, publishing obscene material in Old Irish in the magazine, a rather unusual uh, accusation. So Dr. Coffey was a splendid uh, president. He, he he looked like a, a fashionable Edwardian musicologist. Uh, he was reputed never to have uh, used a fountain pen, and he was allergic to the internal combustion engine. He always arrived at the college by cap. Uh, a splendid gentleman. And uh, I went in, and on the advice of my my legal advisors, and I had plenty of them because the place was stiff with briefless barristers, they had advised me to plead immediately criminal negligence, that I was unable to read what I had published, etc., Central et So I did this at once, uh, and I said to Dr Coffey that, unfortunately, I couldn't read Old Irish, and I had published material that I could not read or evaluate. <laughs> this set us off on a, on a very good start, because Dr Coffey confessed that he was similarly handicapped himself. So we started off as two underprivileged people, <laughs> unable to read Old Irish, and we got on splendidly.
4: He was a big man in, in college and by that time we were already more or less talking in his language uh, after it swim, two birds and, and Main Hall was a very essential part of the scene where with the uh, parallel dirty lines along the wall where the country fellows would lean instead of going to lectures and with the room back in that weird architectural museum where country boys were, what was it, planking down cards and roaring out the name of God. And then he had, where the phrases were, like the Puka Macphilome, through a gap in his teeth, he whistled a civil cavatina and acquired respect because of the treatment, meted out to his wife, who was one of the Corrigans of Carlo, And all this had become a sort of lingua franca at that time, so that he was regarded with a uh, not only a certain amount of awe, but at the same time a certain amount of fellowship. He had already, it was quite obvious, immortalised the college.
6: The entire sort of uh, cultural life of the college, such as it was, any societies associated with that were literally within, uh, within the control of quite a small group. Um, they managed to elect committees, to change committees, to uh, hoist themselves into positions of power in the societies by all sorts of dubious electoral ruses of every kind, uh, I suppose that would have been a good training for politics later, um, but the astonishing thing about Brian and the thing that i you know that sticks in my mind, he certainly, from the very earliest time I knew him, he displayed an extraordinary originality. Um, he never wanted to do the obvious, and if he succeeded in doing something, uh, take writing at Swim Two Birds. He would then do something completely different, as in The Third Policeman. He was always moving on to something new, uh, full of ideas, full of invention, and full of mischief, of course.
1: Control of student newspapers and societies carried certain material advantages, free cinema tickets and books for review.
6: We carefully divided among ourselves these free uh, theatre and cinema tickets, and also the books that you got to review, because at that time you could sell a book in new condition for, I think, two-thirds of the published price. So this this was a, a modest source of income, and in the, in the 30s, uh, nobody had any money at all. It was uh, an extraordinary time. People nowadays wouldn't re- realise it. Uh, so every penny that could be got, or any kind of uh, work uh, that could bring in a few shillings was, was uh, useful. Brian uh, got one of the jobs he got was uh, standing at the gateway of the Phoenix Park race course to identify university students. He, he described himself as, he said I'm the modern James Carey, he, he, he was the informer because students in those days got uh, race tickets at uh, reduced rates so naturally the race course people wanted to make sure they were going into the right hands.
1: When Miles left college, he spent a year in Germany. Then, as his widow recalls, there were urgent reasons why he should get a steady job.
7: Uh, they're a family of 12, and uh, uh, his father died when shortly after he left college. And um, he had felt he ought to look after his family, so he had to help.
1: His father them. had a very good job, hadn't he?
7: Yes, his father was chairman of the revenue commissioners, uh, but he died suddenly. And um, I think uh, Brian felt he was the one to do something at the time. So, uh, as he was in the civil service and had a fairly good job, uh, he contributed. So, a lot of the family were still at school.
8: I, I inherited uh, Brian or N- Nolan, uh, or my as in is. He lives in history, in literary history, from the late P.J. Rutledge, who was my predecessor in the what was then the Department of Local Government and Public Health. Uh, he had been private secretary to Mr. Rutledge and uh, ordinary normal course. Uh, Mr. Rutledge's successor would have taken him over unless he had found that he was in some way temperamentally or otherwise unsuited because private secretaries and ministers have to work very closely with each other, and if there's not f- sort of empathy between them uh, they they tend to get across purposes and uh, it's always unpleasant and very unpleasant to have to change a private secretary. I didn't have to do that with miles miles. Was, in my opinion, a very efficient private secretary. He wasn't obtrusive. Uh, he did, of course, read correspondence as it came to me, and he passed it up to me with a brief comment on it as to whether it was really serious or worth. And minister has you. see, he can't waste all his time reading letters. He just has to read those which appear to be significant. And Miles was very good at that. He he was able to sift the wheat in the shaft to, to 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 put before me the letters which were really relevant to my responsibilities. I couldn't let outside any other department he'd say what the subject was about, and they'd say, Well, I, I'd pass it on to the department if it relates to me for their comments, or I'd pass it on to whatever was the appropriate department. Now he worked very conscientiously. I, I must say that I, I uh, arrived reasonably early at my office. Miles was there before me when I was leaving, which generally late in the evening. Miles was then engaged in his own private business. That is to say he was sitting at the typewriter typing out his stuff, I think for the Irish Times. Uh, so, but uh, he, he was, uh, as I said in his official capacity to me, a very efficient private secretary. Now, that was a difficult time for my private secretary. It was a difficult time for the minister, but also it was for the man who had to sift what was coming uh, was coming in with every day's post and put before his minister
1: what really required ministerial attention. Sean McEntee remembering the good civil servant, Michael Phelan was one of Miles's juniors in local government.
9: Yeah, he was a strange and enigmatic figure in the area of the Custom House because nobody really knew him, you see. Uh, certainly some of the very higher ups may have known him. The Secretary of the Department, for instance, at the time, and such people would have known him because he would have, let's be honest about it, he would have deferred to them somewhat. But as regards people at his own level or people beneath him, he never took the slightest interest in them. In fact, uh, I know one man who went to school with him, and was a high official in the department at the time, as high as himself, and uh, also quite a literary man in fact, but he told me now recently that in all his time in the department he never succeeded in speaking to Miles. He He stayed very very aloof from everybody, he flitted in and out, that would be the only word to use I think in connection with him, in fact I mentioned in the article I wrote about him that he never even came into the room where we sat, and we were his staff, and that was over a period of two years. He never entered that room on one occasion. And uh, for a long time, of course, I had been intrigued with him, well, because I was a great admirer of his writings, both the original Swim to a Bird and the uh, bail book of course, and the, uh, the crew skiing, which came along regularly. Uh, but then, of course, when I came to the Custom House and found I might be elected to see this famous man and meet him, I was very intrigued also. But uh, from all the inquiries I could make from people who should have known him would have been working in his area, one found they knew nothing about him and most of them had never succeeded in speaking to him and he never took the slightest interest in them or showed any interest in them at all although a lot of them would have been very interesting people to speak to
1: You worked with him for two years and you say you yes. never got close to him
9: Did Never he got ever, close to him
1: ever engage you in
9: idle conversation? Not the slightest, not a word in the world, no I could say honestly that he never even looked at my face I would say, and wouldn't have known me I think that's an honest thing to say he wouldn't have known me if he met me outside the room but um, well, that would have been true of the other staff also except the the somewhat senior staff who would whom, on whom he would have had to depend a good deal for to get him through
1: outside the office. miles was an instant success in another sphere: the scourge of the city fathers, the chronicler of the brother, the observer of Andy clarkin's clock.
6: I introduced him to Bertie Smiley in the old palace bar, and uh, Bertie talked to him very quickly they got on wonderfully well and within 10 minutes he had uh, he had Miles to do a column for the irish times uh, at first it was only in an irish um, and a, a rather ludicrous situation developed because there was nobody in the irish times who could read irish you know they were in the same position as i was in relation to the old irish and uh, after about a, a week smiley rang me up and said uh, you know i said i'm getting stuff here and uh, You know, we can't read it. Would you read it for us? So I had the ludicrous position where they were sending this stuff to me to read for libel and various other things, uh, unknown to Brian. The first time
4: that, um, let me see, I said, it would have been, I think, the first time I ever actually saw him, uh, was in um, Delear Street. And uh, R.M. Smiley was standing there as impassive as, as the legs of stone in the desert, you know, to him, poofing at the pipe and Miles was standing much smaller than him and arguing and dabbing his forefinger at him. What the argument was about, I I do not know. I suspect it was about what uh, R.M. was not paying for for the column or something of that sort. But it was the impassivity of the enormous man and the sort of gallic activity of Brian that, that made the whole scene really worth photographing. It. I certainly photographed it in my memory. I can see them still.
1: Jack White worked for the Irish Times in those days. I asked him if he remembered any passages at arms between Miles and Smiley.
5: He used to have them quite often, though not very often face to face. They did, of course, sometimes meet, they met drinking together, and then they were usually quite amiable, and um, Miles would sometimes make fun of Smiley or jibe at him, but this was all done in quite a friendly spirit. On the other hand, when changes had been made to his copy or To be more accurate, we didn't change his copy, we sometimes cut it. Um, He then used to write in letters the most fearsome invective against the editor, and sometimes he was sufficiently affronted to withdraw his services altogether. There was a period, especially, I think, during his early career, when Miles Nagopolin made it quite a habit of using his column to pick up the editorials, the leaders that Smiley had written, to make fun of them, to uh, perform tricks with them, and to, uh, to ridicule them in all sorts of ways. And Smiley himself, as editor, enjoyed this enormously. I remember that at one stage, the two, the column and the leader appeared on the same page, and there used to be a hand printed in the column pointing over towards your man over there. This was the leader writer. Now, Smiley, as I say, found this highly amusing, and I. I'm not sure that there was an editor of a serious newspaper in these islands who would have put up, put up with that sort of performance from one of his contributors. And it's a great measure of the man himself that he was able to, uh, to accept this as another feature of what was an eccentric, but in some ways, a very great newspaper.
1: The pub life of Dublin was vivid and colourful. It attracted Miles.
6: In his college days, he was uh, much like any of the rest of us. He, he, uh, he writes about this in That Swim to Birds. He drank a lot of uh, stout, which was the cheapest drink. Uh, a bottle of stout then cost sixpence, and a pint sevenpence, as far as I remember. And um, in la- uh, he was never he was never a real drinker until, I would think, oh, during the war, um, after he had begun to write the um, column in the Irish Times.
3: He loved his pubs, and he had a great selection of them. And he made all his his social contacts. Indeed, you might say his social life was very, very much in the pubs of Dublin. And um, I remember once I made a list of the ones that I remembered knowing knowing him to see, and it was it was alarmingly long. Um, it made me even begin to worry about myself that I'd known him in so many different ones.
2: I can't claim to have been an intimate of no Lines. Are to have known him well over a long period. I did get to know him uh, on that level of casual intimacy that pub conversations sometimes engenders. Uh, we talked at times about those safe topics that you can talk about in pubs. Politics and uh, the the less profound reaches of the arts, and uh, people in the public eye and people in the private eye, and you can say a lot without saying very much. But I found his entertain his conversation on that level entertaining at times, abrasive as he was, uh, just as abrasive as he could be in print. But uh, I must say that I found him a less formidable person, that is in the off-putting sense, than uh, legend had made out.
7: It was very interesting to uh, go anywhere with Brian because uh, he always got into conversation very easily. I mean, if we went into a pub or a hotel or anything like that, uh, he would get talking to somebody and... uh, very interesting conversations with the ordinary person you know.
4: We would have been in of course the castle uh, which was a continue, really a continuation of Mike Dade's and um, some of the, the old pubs they really haven't altered that much um, some of them have even developed in character but I couldn't see him in a lot of the very very fancy downtown lounges or anything of that sort or even the very great suburban lounges those enormous filling stations. Uh, they're too unintimate for forum. He belonged at, at the counter and with a small circle or behind the barrel in the bodega and that sort of thing. Miles ju- was just a, a sort of a
3: drinkard, if I could use that word, uh, as against a drunkard or an alcoholic. He was a drinkard. He enjoyed drinking, he enjoyed the social company of people in pubs. It was like the, the café life is to the, was to the Parisian of the, the, um, the last century... The pub was to him, but of course, like everybody who's continuously doing it, it it uh, gets it gets progressively worse for them. He preferred the old uh, dark, smoky type of pub with snugs and oil lamps and that sort of thing, and uh, he liked you know small owner-run pubs like you know Cheerio Rinds or. Mulligan's and Poolbeg Street. Shortly before he died, um, the gra- the grand big new pubs were coming, becoming the fashion all over Dublin and he was living beside one of them and uh, he described it to me as being like Croke
1: Park with a roof over it, navin carpeted from yawl to yawl. All the while he was writing. At Swim Two Birds was a critical success.
6: Round about... Uh... I think it was the autumn of uh, 35 or the early 36 uh, Brown said he, he was going to write a book and he had, he had already started on it and he used to just give me long descriptions of the sort of philosophical and, and intellectual uh, background to the book but then he began to bring in uh, pieces of it you know as he t- as he typed it and I discovered to my astonishment that I was one of the main characters under the name of Brinsley and used to bring these successive uh, uh, excerpts from the, the work in progress uh, for me to look at and, and to get a comment from me. And this was the most peculiar feeling of uh, living within, a, uh, existing in another um, mode, as it were, within a work which is still actually being created, and in fact changed by the very fact of coming in and talking to me. One day I gave him a, a thing, that a wonderful thing I'd got from some tipster in Newmarket with that wonderful language, you know, the racing. You know, get on this cast iron so-and-so cert. And he was so taken with this that it, it went straight into the next uh, chapter of the book and it's still there, you know. Uh, then he, another thing, he uh, I had uh, uh, published with Don Macdonald a book of poems and uh, one of them was a translation from Catullus, Ad Lesbian, which was one of the lesbian poems, and he said, give me a copy of that so <laughs> I gave him this and the next thing it appears in the book, in total uh, attributed to Brinsley but to this day uh, quite a lot of people think that he wrote this poem, you know um, then when he had the thing finished, uh, I said to him look, it's uh, it's too long it was about 800 pages of typescript so I said, it's far too long well, he said, if you think that, you can bloody well cut it yourself. I'm sick of it. So I chopped out about 25, 30% of it.
0: I wish I'd kept them now. Having the best authority, there only 600 copies of that Swim to Birds were sold in Ireland. Well, now that is um, a very, very poor response to a writer whom most people say we knew from the beginning. He was, um, he, um, you know, he, that he was a genius of the first water.
3: If the war hadn't come when it did, you see, his book, At Soon Two Birds, came out on September the 3rd, I believe, 1939. It certainly came out in September 1939 and would have been a, a tremendous, tremendously acclaimed critically because even the few reviewers who uh, were... Dispassionate enough to be able to review it without, without worrying about other things which were happening then, gave it rave notices, but not enough, there wasn't enough interest
1: to get him as a writer off the ground. Miles dabbled at writing plays, but his outlook on the theatre seems to have been curiously unsophisticated.
7: Brian had a very nice habit of sometimes uh, being maybe in town, phoning me up and uh, saying, Would you like to come in for a meal and maybe go on to the gaiety or something? And uh, I always like to leave the kitchen and run along. Needless to remark, I drop everything and go.
1: When you say the gaiety, uh,
7: sometimes the gaiety, yes.
1: This would be a variety show. Eh?
7: Well, uh, frequently, if if Jimmy o was on, he liked to go, or he knew Jimmy O'Dee very well, and
1: uh, did Jimmy ever engage him in the back chat that he was famous for from the stage?
7: Oh, a little, yes, indeed. Yes. And
1: would uh, Brian answer?
7: Well, it would be... Brian probably would start it.
0: <laughs> Miles was particularly scornful about uh, all Abbey plays and Abbey playwrights. By the way, uh, I never knew him to go to the theatre very much, but uh, he was um, well-informed, of course, on uh, writers in general, Because, uh, but um, he didn't go to the theatre much. But he, um, he was always um, extremely sarcastic and he used to... Uh, Marvelous uh, stories about Prince McNamara and about the Abbey play and all that, which of course was fair game about wills and everything else. But strangely enough, the irony of it was that um, he, um, despite his scorn, he, he translated one of uh, Prince of McNamara's plays into Irish, Margaret Gillen for the Goom, and that just caused some amusement. But Miles was very brilliant, but I think that. Uh, in a way that um, he could be very easily hurt, and in those early 40s, I think it was 43, he wrote Faustus Kelly. Now, there were two very good acts in that, it was very well played in the Abbey, but it was a flop. I think it ran a fortnight for three weeks, it was very bad, by even by the st- standard of runs at that time. And he, he really never got over that. And um, he spoke uh, different to me, to me about plays ever after. I think he never got over the heart because he had said up to that that there was nothing that anybody could write a play in a week without going to the theatre or anything like that. And I, I think uh, he, he took it very badly. Frank Dermody produced a play. They had an excellent cast. And um, I remember well, because uh, I was around the Abbey uh, that particular week, they said, you take a curtain call. No, he kind of knew before. A hand, you know, with the premonition of failure, and he wouldn't go on. Now, he would have been uh, loudly welcomed because, the, if you like, the in people were all on his side because his column in the Irish Times and they'd be, I think, very forgiving and because of the first two exit rounds of blood. No, he wouldn't go on the stage at all. In fact, he did something that was very mildly and he persuaded Dermody to dress up Dennis O'Dea, who, um, who was not in the play, as Miles Nagopolin. And I I think it's the only time, at least that I know, in the theatre, where um, an author uh, took a caution call in the persona of his pseudonym.
1: I wonder, was this symptomatic of the man, in a way, that he he went under so many names, for example?
0: That uh, is right, that is right, that he hid, he hid uh, behind many masks. Miles asked me to
8: look over the manuscript of Faustus Kelly which I did and made one or two suggestions about it. it. I I thought he should have toned it down in in some places. I said, you're you're going to antagonize, if you want this play to be a success, well, the thing to do is to catch an audience and try not to antagonize uh, a rather influential element uh, in the population, uh, which Miles, of course, with with his, his intellectual integrity, Uh, setting out, and uh, I suppose really in this case, to, to, uh, if my recollection of the play is correct, to to try and debunk the snobbery which was then uh, rampant. He was determined to try to do this, uh, and uh, he he didn't. He didn't accept my
1: recommendations, and I'm not suggesting, you see, for the moment, that the play failed, because he didn't. (laughs) Through the years, there were the occasions that Miles loved outings with friends on birthdays and bloomsdays he was a great man at at a
4: pub counter and uh, he frequented later on he came down a considerable amount to the white horse with Brendan Behan in fact I remember one historic day I was going off to the country and um, uh, he came down to celebrate Brian's birthday and Brian with him and uh, Behan did and uh, I was rather lucky I went off to the country because a good friend of mine who stayed behind got embroiled in a day that went on for a very long day indeed. But I see great company and wonderful talk and his um, utter sense of the ridiculous. Well, that's obvious in what he wrote. Um, he was fond of the old Oozle Galley because I think of the story of the Oozle Galley, the uh, Dublin ship that was taken by the pirates and then the Dublin Ringsend sailors rather, who were more piratical than the pirates, who took the ship back, robbed everything they could find, and sailed it back to Dublin. Uh, they must be the only known people who, who robbed the Barbary Corsairs. I went on the first James Joyce
3: pilgrimage in um, 1954, which was the 40th anniversary of Bloomsday, uh, w- which took place on June the 16th, 1904. And uh, he led this pilgrimage which was later called the Pilgrimace. Somebody said it was a combination of a pilgrimage and a disgrace. And uh, we used three of the old horse cabs in Dublin and we, we took off from the Martello Tower in Sandy Cove, and we made our way through all the various uh, chapters in Ulysses, um, picking, picking the pub that was most suitable to each locality because each chapter in Ulysses is, is of course, a locality as well. And uh, we, had a, we had a marvellous day. And I remember when we arrived at a, a pub quite near a big um, cemetery in Dublin. Uh, they thought we were the mourners on the way to a funeral, you see. And the, the owner of the publican knew, uh, public knew Miles, as would be his wont, uh, and uh, he said to him, I hope it was nobody too near. Whereupon Miles said, Ah, it was a chap called James Joyce. And the publican said, Oh, little Jimmy Joyce, the sign writer that used to live in Wolf Tone Square. And Miles said, I ah, know you, he said, you Egypt. James Joyce, the famous writer. Oh, says he, I think I heard of him. It, did he write that, that book,
1: Useless? Ah, you've got him now, says well. <laughs> that was a great outing. The Milesian anecdotes are still recalled.
9: He describes how he's going up. O'Connell Street one night in his Morris Minor and uh, as he's passing uh, Abbey Street a car suddenly shoots out from Abbey Street where Miles really has the right of way cuts across the bonnet of his car and shoots off down lower Abbey Street so there's a guard that's standing on the corner and Miles winds down the window and says to the guard did you see that? and the guard that says the guard I did sir, that was terrible will we follow him? so Miles says hop in the guard sits in Miles takes off after our friend off down Abbey Street, out the North Strand, out through County Dublin, away out, and eventually by a great piece of daredevil driving. According to Miles' description, he corners this fellow in some roadway out, away out in North County Dublin. The guard gets out and goes up and interviews our friend, and goes uh, back to Miles after a couple of minutes and says, "It's no good, sir. Do you know who he is? He's the first cousin of the commissioner." So Myles says to him, uh, "Is that a fact? Do you know who I am? I'm a first cousin of De Valera." God searches the guard we will follow him again. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I was uh, saying to him once that Tory Island was in schism once from the Church of Rome, because the people on the island wouldn't let the old curate off, and they wouldn't let the new curate on. And the Tory Islanders had a way of running their own island, and they, I mean they weren't, as they would say themselves, they. Uh, they didn't feel safe in Ireland, and they didn't trust the Irish much. They were rather different people from other islanders. But he had a better story than the one about the curate, of course, that during the British days, the islanders refused to pay the rates. Uh, so the British sent out a gunboat from Galway Harbour to enforce their demands, and Brian said, and do you know what happened to that gunboat? The Tory islanders knelt down and prayed... God himself doesn't know who they prayed to, but the gunboat sank with all hands on board. <laughs> the assumption being that the islanders had prayed to their own ancient Norse sea gods or whoever, whatever
1: gods they have. In his column, Miles had been tilting for years at public figures and sacred cars. This wasn't always popular with his minister, as Sean McEntee recalls. Well, there were one or two rumblings about
8: what Miles wrote in the Irish Times. But they were really not about the members of the Dublin Corporation or the general public. They were about uh, Ernest Blythe, if you remember. I think it was a f- famous character called Ernest de Bloch or something like that. I forget exactly what, 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 the, what the, the cognomen was, but it was there. Uh, so so, uh, so uh, there were a certain amount, but there was n- no uh, public uh, re- remonstrance about it. But in the case of what Miles said uh, in relation to the Dublin Corporation, uh, there, there w- were certainly very strong protests. And I, I may say, I think now, of course, Miles is not here to answer for himself. But uh, that uh, I thought that he had gone uh, a little bit over, over the edge.
1: Uh, Did you ever say this to him?
8: I didn't because, you see, I, I was Minister for Finance when he was retired. And the original proposal put up by his department was that he should be dismissed. Well, I met his minister, who was very sympathetic at the time, and uh, we had agreed that we couldn't dismiss him because he had given long service, and people knew knew that he had carried very great burdens.
5: He
7: seemed rather confused. At first, I, I kind—I didn't really believe him when he told me. Uh, uh, he seemed to, to think at first he, it would be a good thing like uh, for writing, that he would have more time on this, but uh, I think you see, he was rather confused about the whole thing because uh, it, meant, uh, it meant really that he would have to write because uh, we would be down so much in money. Uh, but I suppose the life outside the civil service was better for him, in a way.
9: There was a great deal of comment about it, and there was a good deal of speculation as to whether he'd get back. Uh, in fact, the government changed shortly after he left, and there was a feeling that he would get back, because uh, really he was dismissed over political ratings, which weren't favourable to, to a particular individual at the time. And... Uh, there was a feeling that if the government changed, he might get back. But in fact, it, it it would have been there was nothing really unjust in his dismissal in relation to the way he was treating his work at the time, in my in my opinion, anyway, because uh, he had lost interest in it, and he you know he had seemed to have lost interest in all conventional things at the time.
0: He felt you know that, uh, that he's, he, you know that he'd been wounded in his pride and in his pocket, and he'd been treated very badly. I know, and um, this is in politics, that he was dismissed under, uh, I think, or left or retired when there was a coalition government in. And he had um, a childish hope that Sean McEntee, who was one of his first bosses, would reinstate him when Fianna Fáil came back to power. And I remember once uh, Behan saying to me that he met Miles and he had told him that he had great hopes of being reinstated now that Sean McEntee was back. And Behan said, I just looked at him, he said, I gave him a pound and told him to go away and get a mess said for himself.
1: Miles had often maintained that he could earn more by leaving the civil service and writing for a living, but there was always a column to be done distracting him from the books he wanted to write.
6: I have a feeling that the long-continued effort involved in keeping the Irish Times column going for a period of, well, a quarter of a century, it was 25 years, at a very high level, of uh, virtuosity and uh, intellectual dexterity, and, and I I have a feeling that that effort drained away his, his uh, to a large extent, his great reserve of creative energy, because I don't think that anyone can contend that uh, The Hard Life, The Dark Archive, and so on, can compare with the first three books, at Swim, The Third Policeman, and on bail Book, which undoubtedly are major works. I think the others, while remarkable in their way, are certainly a step behind that. And I think Brian knew this himself. He knew that, uh, he felt that his uh, his reserve of energy, as, uh, creative energy, was being siphoned away day by day. And this, I think, led to some extent to the excessive drinking in his later. Uh, there was also the pressure of a kind of popularity that was uh, almost alien to him because he became uh, he became literally famous overnight through the column. And a kind of popularity grew out of that. Uh, he had a, a popular fame which was not related really to, to the qualities of his genius at all. People coming up and slapping him on the back and the, ten- the Dublin tendency to make a character out of him, you know? He resented this very much, and I think that tension... Uh, uh, the drinking was a kind of uh, anaesthetic for that kind of tension.
1: Miles died in 1966, and Ireland lost a man of wit and of savage indignation. Possibly he was the modern-day Swift. Did he see himself in that light?
5: I believe he had some illusions of that kind. Certainly he uh, used to speak sometimes, uh, like a man with rather delusions of grandeur, I think. He felt that the, perhaps the fact that his column made such an instant impression and was so much read and so much talked about, gave him an ex- an exaggerated idea of the power that it has. Uh, it's not, by the way, an uncommon failing with people in communications, even our own.
1: Whatever about the power of his writing, it's his character that's remembered by his friends.
3: Meeting him personally, he was far less abrasive than, say, Paddy Kavner, who was deliberately... Patrick Kavner... Was a very nice person basically, but he could be deliberately very nasty to people, and very abrasive, and very personally insulting. But uh, Miles was a was a gentleman, as they'd say.
7: Well, as far as I was concerned, he was very good. Uh, I thought he was very thoughtful. Uh, he always remembered anniversaries and. Uh, He never forgot me at Christmas or birthdays or times like that, which I really always felt amused at this for a man who kind of seemed to be uh, so occupied, you know, with writing his old column, etc. you know. It was really a bit of a chore, you know, for so
6: many years. I think that uh, many people uh, may have got a a false impression of Brian, uh, especially in his later life. He was essentially... Uh, a private, aristocratic, fastidious person. His manners were absolutely superb, one of the best-mannered people I've ever come across. He he was an aristocrat, as all great writers tend to be.
4: He must have been a very formidable colleague to have, because I suspect, like, in everything else, he knew too much about everything. In in that, he was a little bit like Paddy Brown... um, if you thought you knew something about something, you always found out that Paddy Brown knew the bit that you didn't know. And both of them could, uh, you know, do this without any show of learning um, so that you didn't feel humiliated if they added something to your rather meagre stock of knowledge. I think he was, he was a great addition and ornament to Irish literature, which is ultimately the important thing about him, and, and uh, it was a, it was a privilege to have known him.